Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, political science, and history. Today's topic, is General Francisco Franco still dead? Our speaker is Michael Reed, who wrote the new book, Spain, the Trials and Triumphs of a Modern European Country. Spain had an election last week, and I want to hear about the implications of a near tie in that election and what it means for both Spain and Europe. The issues in Spain will be familiar to you. Too much immigration, abortion rights, and should the region of Catalonia be an independent nation? Let's begin with Michael's opening six-minute remarks. Thanks very much for having me. Let me start by saying that I hesitated long and hard before starting to write this book because I thought, frankly, there are too many books about Spain, especially by Brits. What moved me to write it was triggered by covering the events in Catalonia in 2017 when separatists, pro-independence people, tried to bounce Catalonia out of Spain with an unconstitutional independence referendum. Now, that actually caught a huge amount of attention in the world. And I felt that a lot of the coverage in the English language media was misleading because it tended to take at face value the narrative of the separatists, that this was an exercise of radical democracy. And I saw it much more through the lens of Brexit as a kind of nationalist, populist, identitarian movement in which Madrid took the role of Brussels for the Brexiteers in Britain. And the other kind of trope in the English language press was that all this was the consequence of Franco's ghost. I saw it rather differently. I had first visited Spain in 1971 in my student vacation. Franco was still alive. I visited a lot in the years since, and I started working on Spain for The Economist, initially from London in 2008, and I moved there in 2016. I had seen this extraordinary period after the transition to democracy in 78, in which Spain enjoyed one of the most successful periods of its history with sustained economic growth, social progress, reform, and political stability. And then, since the financial crisis, which in Spain was long and deep, 2008 to 2012, things have been much harder. Spain has suffered austerity, corruption emerged, political fragmentation and polarization and instability these waves of populism, three waves of populism, in fact. One from the left of the indignados, who who were the template for Occupy Wall Street. Out of them came Podemos, a far-left group. And then the mutation of Catalan nationalism, which had been around for a long time, into separatism, which on a large scale was much newer. And then Vox, a hard-right party. And my view was that most of these problems were similar to those in democracies everywhere since the financial crisis and were not because of some defect of origin of Spanish democracy. All countries have their peculiarities and the Spanish peculiarity evidently is the relative strength of the oxymoron regional nationalisms in Catalonia and the Basque country. 
Spain is a very mountainous country and quite a big country by European standards now. And until high-speed trains, aeroplanes and motorways, it was a difficult country to get around. Industrialization happened partly because of that on the coasts in Catalonia and the Basque Country. And in those areas, industrialization produced social tensions, a lot of inward migration. And at the same time, the Spanish state was relatively weak in the 19th century. I compare Spain with France in that regard. And it's interesting that in the mid-19th century, there were more regional languages spoken in France than in Spain. But the post-revolutionary state in France was a strong state and it imposed from the centre outwards, from the top down, it imposed a single language, the French language, and a single culture. And it did that through the massive expansion of rural railways and roads, through free and universal public education with a school in every village, teaching only in the French language, and by making military service universal and turning it into a school of citizenship. The Spanish state tried to do all of those things, but it was less successful. So regional languages and cultures survived in Catalonia and the Basque Country where there were powerful bourgeoisie, powerful because of industrialization. And they led that cultural revival, which in due course became political nationalism. And although the last 15 years or so have been challenging, the country still has a lot of strengths. I mean, it's capable of economic growth in normal circumstances, fairly rapid economic growth by European standards. It has undergone a remarkable cultural transformation in the last 50 years. 50 years ago, it was under the moral control of the Catholic Church. It's now become Scandinavia in the sun. It has successively legalized divorce, abortion, gay marriage, euthanasia, and so forth. The society is broadly very tolerant. And it was interesting in the general election that was held on the 23rd of July, Vox, the hard right which campaigned on culture wars, actually lost ground and its vote fell by a fifth to 12.4%. Spanish society is much less polarised than Spanish politics. The two main parties in Spain, the Socialists on the centre-left and the People's Party on the centre-right, are regaining their strength. You know, Their combined vote had dropped to just 48% in 2015. It's back up to 65%. But one of the lasting legacies, and perhaps the strongest legacy of the Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 1939, is that the left-right political divide, which fortunately is peaceful, obviously, is deeper than in the rest of Western Europe. It's harder to bridge it. So although there's a moderate majority in the country, those two main parties find it very hard to collaborate. And so you had an outgoing coalition government of the socialists with forces considerably further to the left and fairly radical Basque and Catalan nationalist parties that may be repeated or there may be a fresh election. Lastly, I would say that the country needs to overhaul its public administration, its public education, and that it should pay more attention to foreign policy. There's a lot going for Spain. It's one of the best countries 
to live in in the world. It has the second longest life expectancy after Japan. I think it's still a country where there's more going right than going wrong. My first question relates to Basque and Catalonian nationalism. The Basque used terrorism as a way to pursue their agenda. They killed lots of innocent people and assassinated, or at least attempted to assassinate, senior members of the government, including the prime minister and judges. Has that left a lingering distaste in Spain for regional breakaway republics? Basque nationalism is actually much more recent than Catalan nationalism. It really only emerged at the turn of the 20th century. And the Basque language, which is unusual in being a non-Indo-European language, was not even codified until the early 20th century. And it was spoken mainly in rural areas and was slowly dying out. And then there was a cultural revival. Franco was particularly harsh on the Basques after he won the Civil War because the Basques were strongly, culturally Catholic, right? And yet, because they wanted regional autonomy, they sided with the Republic, which was anti-clerical during the Civil War. And Franco found that very hard to forget. And he suppressed Basque financial autonomy, which had quite deep historical roots. So nationalism re-emerged in the 1960s, and it re-emerged in two guises. The mainstream moderate Basque Nationalist Party, which had formed the short-lived regional government during the Republic in the 1930s. And then ETA, this Marxist-Leninist, nationalist, terrorist group, which was one of several in Europe in the 1960s and 1970s. There was the Bader-Meinhof group, so-called Red Army faction in West Germany. There were the Red Brigades in Italy. And then, of course, there was the IRA in Northern Ireland. And in some ways, ETA was similar to the IRA. But the big difference was that ETA carried on after democracy was restored with a sweeping degree of regional self-government for the Basque country and a general amnesty, which meant that convicted Basque killers were released from jail in the late 1970s under that amnesty. But ETA carried on and indeed intensified its violence in an attempt to bring down the new democracy and particularly to target military and police personnel in the hope of turning them against the new democracy to sharpen the contradictions in the terms that Marxist-Leninists used in those days. You could argue that the IRA emerged in Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland wasn't a proper democracy. It was gerrymandered. The Protestants were systematically overrepresented and ran the place at the expense of the Catholic minority. That didn't apply in the Basque country. I mean, ETA only stopped its terrorism 10 years ago. It only disbanded five years ago. That is certainly one reason for the hostility of many Spaniards to the idea of independence, of their country being broken up. But I would say that, and it's something that many people in Britain don't understand, the continental European constitutional tradition is of territorial integrity. So 
the idea that it's fine to have a referendum more or less on a whim to break up the country is anathema to many people in Spain. Now, that said, clearly, if the opinion polls showed that there was a very solid, stable majority for independence in Catalonia or the Basque Country, I think they would have a strong case for it. But that has never been the reality. Let's next discuss Catalonia's independence movement. I'm not sure that the English-speaking press picked up on the bizarre nature of the independent referendum. It was not sanctioned by the central government. In fact, it was illegal. There was a spontaneous vote over a weekend. Ballot boxes were hidden in France and then rushed over the border right before the vote. The politicians in Madrid view that referendum as a treasonous act. And the leader of the Catalonian referendum is currently in exile. What is driving the Catalonian independence movement? I try and analyze how it was that, in the words of one historian of Catalonia, a separatist minority became a multitude in favor of independence. And I think there are several causes. One was clearly austerity. That was dramatized when the regional government, which was in the hands of what had been the mainstream Catalan nationalists, party, which was essentially a Christian Democrat party, was quite in favor of cutting public spending. And then there was a big, big protest in Catalonia and they reversed course. And they embraced independence as a way of deflecting that public anger, right? Then there was a series of political missteps which had inflamed opinion. It was about whether Catalonia should have a new statute of independence going beyond the original one of the 1970s, which granted them a lot of autonomy. They ran their own police force, for example, their own prisons, their own ports. That whole saga of the new statute was mishandled and bits of it ended up being rejected years afterwards by the Supreme Court. And then there was this sense in Catalonia that it had always been the most advanced region Mm -hmm. in Spain. And the Catalan nationalists and bourgeoisie kind of looked down on the rest of Spain as underdeveloped or whatever. And with democracy and with regional autonomy, the rest of Spain started catching up. And indeed, the Madrid region has overhauled Catalonia in terms of income per head. And so that insecurity led up to that mainstream, moderate, nationalist party in Catalonia becoming pro-independence and pledging to hold a referendum. The conservative central government of the time in Spain was very preoccupied with saving the financial system, with austerity, trying to get the economy growing again, and made the mistake of ignoring all this for too long. It would have been better in hindsight to have attempted a negotiation. I mean, they did try a negotiation, to be fair. The Catalan regional government put forward 40 points, but it turned out they were only ever interested in the first point, which was to be able to hold a legal referendum on independence. Well, that, under the Constitution, is not possible. So you would have had to change the Constitution. You could have perhaps found ways around that, but the Catalan regional government decided to just press ahead regardless They pushed through the Catalan parliament a law to allow the referendum and to disconnect 
Catalonia from Spain and appoint their own judges and things like that in total violation of the constitution right the striking thing about catalonia was that it was divided right down the middle even though there was no verified count of this unofficial referendum it didn't get a majority turnout the catalan regional government their big hope was that europe would support them nobody did nobody wanted a new state and a territorial dispute inside the European Union which has enough problems without that kind of thing so it was really a political failure for the nationalist movement in Catalonia and they've been trying to grapple with that ever since there are generally three different types of european governments supranational national and regional in this example there's the eu spain and catalonia And as the EU grows stronger, it undermines the nation-state, which allows the regional government to make a power play. Scotland similarly wanted to be an independent country, and now Catalonia. But both found no ally in the European Union. Why was that? In Europe, there are three levels of government in most countries, right? The European Union, the nation-states, and then regions Catalonia and the Basque country have more autonomy than anywhere else in the European Union no? what distinguishes them and what they have in common with Scotland say is that they are regions which the political class in those areas think of themselves as nations and not regions no in both Catalonia and the Basque country I mean as in many parts of Europe in the 19th century there was a phenomenon which Eric Hobsbawm the British historian called the invention of tradition there was this creation of national myths and traditions it was an era of nationalism i don't think it follows that if you have a language and a particular culture you have to have a nation state there are far more languages in the world than there are nation states and the logic of that that if you have a language you have to have a nation state is essentially ethnic cleansing i think it's much more reasonable to think that that language and that culture deserve to be cherished and nourished and protected i'm very much with amartya sen the british indian economist and philosopher on this when he says that we all have multiple identities and that nationalists tend to assert a single identity and that divides people rather than unites them and i don't think it's a formula for successful living together and progress and good government next topic is the spanish civil war do spanish historians evaluate their civil war differently than foreign historians the way it's usually seen abroad it was if you like a prelude to the second world war and it was an anti-fascist struggle for the left in europe but it was also a continuation of a century or more of a political battle between liberals and conservatives in spain the republican governments of the left and center introduced a fairly radical program of reform of the kind which was fairly normal in the rest of europe including secularization the reduction of the role and privileges of the catholic church an attempt to modernize the army and land reform in a country where there were large estates and a lot of rural poverty more powers for trade unions and so on and 
regional autonomy in Catalonia and the Basque country. That was all resisted from the right. At the same time, the left contained, on the one hand, democratic reformers, and on the other hand, a powerful anarchist movement and powerful trade unions and a small but growing communist party. When a right-wing government was elected in 1933, they attempted an uprising against it, an armed uprising, which was repressed by the army led by General Franco. When the left were elected again in 1936, against a background of rising tension and tit-for-tat killing, the army staged an uprising. It was a coup attempt. It didn't succeed all over Spain. It only succeeded in some places. And that turned into the civil war in which Hitler and Mussolini intervened to help Franco and the right, and the Soviet Union intervened to help the Republic. Britain and France, the democracies, sat on their hands, essentially. The civil war was long and bloody, and the Republican side had clear political legitimacy, but they didn't enjoy a monopoly of moral legitimacy. There was terror on both sides. It was more extensive on the Franco side, mainly because he won. And he imposed a long dictatorship, which was pretty repressive at the beginning. In its last 20 years, it became less repressive. It succeeded in economic development in Spain. Spain rather impressively moved from being a middle-income country with a lot of inequality into a developed country with a large middle class. So the way that Franco is seen in Spain is not quite the same as the way he is usually seen outside. He was a dictator, there's no doubt about that. But as part of that transition to democracy, there was an agreement, a tacit agreement, not to use the past as a political weapon in the present. And that served Spain quite well. To me, one of the surprising elements of the Spanish Civil War was the role of the Catholic Church. The left was anti-clerical, and there was much violence and murders of local Spanish priests. The religious conservatives were outraged, and that was a critical catalyst for the coup and the Civil War. I thought it was very interesting that when Franco later governed during his dictatorship, he gave the Catholic Church substantial power with respect to both social services and schools. The Church was very pleased with his position, but it represents a strange coexistence between the church and state dictatorship. The Catholic Church was historically always very powerful and very important in Spain. I mean, if one goes back to Isabella, the Catholic queen of the late 15th century, who expelled the Jews and required Muslims to convert, she kind of defined Spanishness and Catholicism as synonymous. No? The weight of the Catholic Church by the time of the 19th century, bred a strong anti-clerical strand in Spanish society as well. And those two clashed in the run-up to the Civil War. Indeed, Franco, when he won, the Second World War was just starting. He thought that Hitler and Mussolini were going to win the Second World War. And so he aligned with them. But Franco was always a fascist of convenience rather than of conviction. And when he realized that Hitler and Mussolini were going to lose the Second World War, 
he very quickly switched and started presenting himself as a Catholic figure and then an anti-communist as the Cold War got underway. The unofficial ideology of his regime became what was known as national Catholicism. And his ruling coalition, if you like, had several strands. I mean, there was the army. There was the party, which had originally been a small fascist party, but which he turned into a kind of official movement of the regime, political movement. And then there were the monarchists who were disappointed by Franco because they expected an early restoration of the monarchy. It only came when he died in 1975. And then there was the Catholic Church. In 1975, Chevy Chase led off the Saturday night weekend update with the top story. This breaking news just in. Generalissimo Francisco Franco is still dead. You may recall that Garrett Morris from the New York School for the Hard of Hearing would cup his hands around his mouth and shout the news as Chase read the announcement. Was Chevy Chase onto something? Is Francisco Franco still dead? Or does his ghost walk the streets of Madrid? That's a brilliant line from Saturday Night Live because he was indeed a kind of near mummy for the last years of his life and kept going because his regime depended on him. But I think it's important to say something about the way the transition happened in Spain because it was widely seen as successful for a long time. And then in the last 15 years, it's been critiqued quite widely. No? And there's this idea that it involved a pact of forgetting, right? which I think is a misnomer, at least. I mean, what there was was an agreement between moderate sectors of the Franco regime who understood that Spain needed to join the European communities. And to do that, it needed to become a democracy. And on the other hand, the opposition, which had had many decades to reflect on what had gone wrong in the Republic and the Civil War, had become much more pragmatic and much more moderate. The transition to democracy and embodied in the Constitution of 1978 involved a historic compromise in which the right accepted decentralization and regional autonomy, and the left accepted the restoration of the monarchy. You know? And there was an amnesty, so nobody would be prosecuted for political crimes. That amnesty was a demand of the left since the 1950s. It's now called a pact of forgetting. It wasn't a pact of forgetting. It was an amnesty. And the society has remembered copiously. I mean, almost every week, there'll be stories in the newspapers, there'll be documentaries or exhibitions about some aspect of the civil war. And there was an agreement not to use the past as a political weapon in the present. It's come under fire from the left in the last 15 years. And you've had now two laws, one called the law of historical memory, which did do something important, I think, which was it recognized that the state should help people whose relatives had been killed and had disappeared, their bodies had disappeared in the Civil War because a lot were thrown into unmarked graves. The state should help them to find them if they wanted that. And that seems to me to be a basic democratic duty. No? And it also required the removal of monuments to Franco and so on. 
The second law, which is more recent, I think is more troubling because it's an attempt to use the past as a political weapon against the right. And that is not the way to overcome the scars of the past. That can only come through consensus and agreement. But one important thing has happened recently, that Pedro Sanchez, the current prime minister, organized the disinterment of Franco from this state mausoleum in which the Catholic Church has a presence. His body was moved to a private family grave in a cemetery in a military camp. And that seems to me to be appropriate. But I think it would be a mistake if Spain continues to revive this notion of using the past as a political weapon. The far-right party in Spain is the Vox, and their opponents call it fascist and the Franco party. It seems to me that the Vox resembles other right-wing parties in Europe. The Vox agrees with the Catholic Church on many social issues like abortion, divorce, and gay marriage, and they also oppose illegal immigration. I agree. I mean, there are a few diehard Franquistas. There's a couple of hundred of them. They turn up on his birthday and so forth. Vox is something very different. I mean, it has a few Franquistas in its ranks, but it's a party very much in the mold of the contemporary European nationalist, populist, hard right. It's Closest point of reference is the ruling parties in Poland and Hungary, for example. Its breakthrough came in response to Catalan separatism, in response to the events of October 2017. And it was a reaction of Spanish nationalism having been dormant out of fear of the country breaking up. And that gave Vox a start. And One of Pedro Sanchez's achievements, I think, is to have taken the sting out of the Catalan conflict, or much of the sting, by pardoning the separatist leaders who were jailed for the illegal referendum in 2017. So Vox has had less traction, but it's switched its attention to two other things. One is culture wars, the defense of traditional Catholic, very male Spanish culture bullfighting, hunting, and so forth. And the other is opposition to illegal immigration. I think Vox is fading because those issues do not get it a huge amount of traction with the Spanish electorate, which on the whole is not terribly interested in culture wars, either of the left or of the right, and is on the whole quite favorable to immigration which is a very recent phenomenon in Spain. And within the grandparents' generation in Spain, a lot of them were emigrants from the poverty of Franco Spain and went to work in other European countries. So that means that attitudes to immigration so far, and it may change, are more tolerant than in many other countries in Europe. Let's get into the weeds on the topic of immigration into Spain as it's very different population than the rest of Europe. There are four major groups, Latin Americans like refugees from Venezuela, Eastern Europeans like Romanians, Brits retiring in the sun, and Africans from Morocco and Sub-Saharan Africa. These immigrant populations are very different. Immigration really took off in this century, and it was because 
there was a construction boom in Spain, which coincided with economic difficulties in several Latin American countries. The first wave was very Latin American, plus Romanians, who yeah. share you know, some religious, cultural, and linguistic similarities with Spain, plus North Africans, as you say. And those three groups tended to blend in fairly easily. And then you have the Brits who retire to the Spanish beaches, some of whom have returned because of Brexit. But what you've had more and what you will have much more in the future is immigration from sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africans are obviously more visible. They have fewer cultural and linguistic similarities. Do you expect trouble? So far, Spain has done pretty well. There may be a reaction against sub-Saharan Africans. And then there is the second generation of immigrants. There was a terrorist incident in Catalonia in 2017 carried out by second-generation immigrants who apparently were quite well integrated but came under the influence of a radical imam. That was a kind of warning that Spain is a long way behind, say, Britain in terms of the descendants of immigrants playing a full and prominent part in national life. You just look at the Spanish football team and the English football team, for example, and you can see the difference. Or look at the current cabinet in Britain and look at the cabinet in Spain, and there's no comparison. There was a recent election in Spain on July 23rd. Before the election, the polls suggested that the center-right party, the PP, would win with a coalition government. What happened? Well, I think Pedro Sanchez is, by some margin, the smartest national politician in Spain at the moment. And by calling this snap election on the back of a kind of bruising defeat for the left in a local election, a regional election, he threw the PP, the mainstream conservative party, off balance. It had to negotiate regional governments with Vox. Sanchez calculated that that would throw Vox into the spotlight. And Alberto Núñez Feijón, the leader of the PP, although he was pretty effective in in one head-to-head debate with Sanchez, who's not a very good debater, he made some big mistakes on the campaign. He failed to put the Vox issue to bed. It would have been wiser to have taken a tough line and sacrificed the chance of some regional governments by refusing to form coalitions with Vox, that would have served him, I think, in the national election. Because Sanchez managed to turn fear of Vox into a big issue in the campaign. The second big mistake that Núñez Feijón made was to be too negative. He tried to turn the election into what he called a referendum on Sanchismo instead of doing much more to project his own positive vision of why he wanted to govern Spain. And he made a big tactical mistake of refusing to take part in the second debate. And that left Vox as the defender of the right. The PP is the largest party. But if it allies with Vox, nobody else will ally with it. Why is this Spanish election important for understanding European politics generally? And what does it mean to have coalition parties with extremists from multiple fringe parties? This reminds me of the Knesset. 
I think there are some things which is worth highlighting. No? One is that the hard right lost ground. The hard left also lost ground. There is a partial restoration of the two-party system. I mean, the combined vote of the two main parties, the Socialists and the PP, which was over 80% as recently as 2008, went down to 49% in 2015, is back up to 66%. It's relevant that you brought up Israel. You have a situation in Spain in which you have almost two-thirds voting for essentially moderate parties. And yet, the extremes on both sides have considerable leverage in this less fragmented parliament than it was. There are 12 parties now down from 18 in the previous parliament. And because of the depth of the left-right divide and the difficulty of bridging it, these groups on the extremes have considerable leverage. It will be interesting to see what happens because to form a new coalition government, Sanchez needs the affirmative vote in parliament of the party of Carlos Puigdemont, the fugitive Catalan separatist president. But his party's initial negotiating position is a referendum and an amnesty. And those are two things that Sanchez cannot ground. Given that the two parties in the center have two-thirds of the delegates in the legislature, why don't they create a coalition and keep the communists, the hard right, and the separatists out? Well, that's the point that Nunez Fejó has been making. It's precisely that point. Why don't you abstain to let me govern? I think grand coalitions are quite problematic. They're certainly not in the Spanish tradition. They tend to have the effect of stimulating the extremes, as is starting to happen in Germany. But I think what a lot of Spaniards would like to see is some basic agreements between the two main parties on governance. But I go back to the lasting influence of the civil war and that the left-right divide is very hard to bridge. There was an attempt at a center party in Spain, and it failed. It's interesting because opinion polls show that most Spanish voters cluster in the middle on an ideological spectrum, but they tend to be quite tribal. And power has shifted hands in Spain, not on the whole, because lots of voters have moved from one party to the other, but because the disillusioned supporters of the governing party have stayed at home while the kind of mobilized, pepped-up supporters of the party in opposition have turned out in large numbers now. So will that change? It might. There's been a lot of muttering about that wouldn't it be good if the two main parties collaborated more. But it's not going to happen in the short term. I end each episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? One is this partial restoration of the two-party system and the return of a moderate majority, if you like. Another is the fact that Vox is trying, but has so far failed, to turn Spain into a less tolerant country. A third is that Spain continues to be a pretty good country to live in. I would say it's a country in which most people live together fairly happily, despite the polarization of the politicians. And... It is a country that 
can continue to make economic progress, provided it has sensible policies. It is a country with challenges, but not all that many enemies. And it's also, lastly, a country that considers the European Union to be very important for it. And that provides a certain safety belt against adventurism and irresponsibilities. Thanks, Michael, for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The topic was the ethics of big data. Our speaker was Dick DeVoe. Dick is the C. Carlisle and Margaret Tippett Professor of Statistics at Williams College. I was Dick's student at Wharton in his Statistics One class in 1985. I love Dick's class because he effectively used storytelling to interest his students in statistics. At Princeton, Dick won the Lifetime Achievement Award for exceptional dedication and excellence in teaching. Dick discussed the problems with big data and the algorithms that we interact with each day in finance, like with credit card and mortgage applications, as well as with crime prevention and parole boards. I now want to make a plug for next week's show, Barbie is the Bomb. I love the new movie, which is now a cultural phenomenon. Global tickets have already exceeded $800 million and rising. I'm going to have two speakers about the movie. First, I want to take the comedy seriously. And our guest will be Kay Heimowitz from the Manhattan Institute and the author of the book, Manning Up, How the Rise of Women Has Turned Men into Boys. I want to hear from Kay about the battle of the sexes in both Barbie land and the real world. And then we're going to hear from the What Happens Next film critic, Darren Schwartz, about why this movie is so funny and entertaining. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining me. Goodbye.